This is a Rooster Teeth production. July 1st, 2002, Bashkirian Airlines Flight 2937, a Tupolev Tu-154M with 69 people on board, and DHL Flight 611, a Boeing 757 cargo flight with two people on board, are rapidly converging with each other in the skies above Überlingen in southern Germany. TCAS alerts are advising the Tupolev to climb and the DHL flight to descend, but air traffic control is telling the Tupolev to descend. Air traffic control is telling the Tupolev that the DHL flight is to their right, when in reality it is to their left. The DHL flight tries to tell air traffic control they're descending, but their transmissions are being blocked by the air traffic control discussion with the Tupolev. The airplanes collide at approximately 35,000 feet with the DHL vertical stabilizer slicing the Tupolev in half. Both planes fall to the ground and all on board perish. How is it possible for two planes to collide while utilizing TCAS and listening to air traffic control? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. How are we doing, Chris? I'm doing good. This is a, a big episode we're doing today. Uh, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's one that has been requested quite a bit on social media. Follow mm-hmm. us at Black Box Down Pod. Uh, and that I've been <laughs> wanting to do for a while. But I don't know. I just felt like there is so much going on in this. I'm sure you could probably already tell yeah. from the intro. This is an absolutely insane event. Maybe one of the most high-profile events that we're going to cover. Even if people don't really, yeah. Even if people don't know, have never heard of this or don't know of this incident, this incident is like maybe the most jaw-dropping out of any that we've done. It's absolutely crazy. Yeah, I mean, because this is pretty. Uh, 2002. This seems pretty late for planes to be colliding. Colliding, right? Because like, like even- we've covered collisions but that was like what like when was that the the first one was like what 30s yeah we you know we did it a long time ago that was the first one and uh i mean it still does happen remember we talked about that embraer jet and that goal airlines over brazil where they were flying at the wrong altitudes and they mm-hmm. hit each other because of a transponder field. like there were a whole bunch of things but you would think nowadays we've talked about tcas and how it helps pilots avoid collisions that this is the kind of thing that doesn't happen anymore but 2002 you know i guess 20 years ago is a long time but it's still Seems modern. There's enough technology in the planes to avoid this kind of thing. I remember TCAS. Can you just quickly give a, you know, quick little summary of it? (laughs) Sure. It's a system on the plane that can help pilots know when there's other planes in the area that are converging with them. It just gives them alerts. And then if it seems like they're getting even closer to the point where they're going to collide, the TCAS coordinates with each other in the different planes and does a conflict resolution where it'll tell one plane to dive and one plane to climb or like one plane to turn right and the other turn left, like to have them avoid each other. Yeah, I remember now. Yeah, because it actually like they communicate with each other so that they both turn the opposite directions, right? Yeah. Correct. Yeah, there's two things, two different, I guess, kind of alerts that TCAS would give you. First is like a traffic advisory when it tells you there's another plane, you know, it's getting close to converging on you. And then the mm-hmm. second one is more urgent. It's a resolution advisory. That's when it's like, okay, you need to do this now to avoid the collision. Okay. So that's uh, kind of in a nutshell, high level, how, how all that works. Man, we're like diving into it already. Before yeah. before we go, we go any further, uh, I do want to remind people, give us a follow on social media, like I said, at Black Box Down Pod. Go look for Black Box Down on YouTube. We have uh, animated videos there, and we just launched an explainer series, just like short couple-minute videos that explain, you know, an aspect of flight that you might be wondering about. Like, for example, we just uploaded a, a five-minute long video about, is airplane mode on your phone really necessary? What does that do? Just like some new content we're trying out to see how it goes. If you want, you can also check out blackboxdownpod.com where you can learn all about getting a premium subscription to Black Box Down. You continue listening to Black Box Down whatever podcast platform you're already listening to it on. Mm-hmm. And if you want, you can pay $2.99 a month and get access to the episodes early and get uh, access to the episodes in an ad-free format. If you want, check that out. And of course, you know, we've got some merch. We have some brand new, uh, a brand new shirt, brand new sticker, brand new mug that all hit store.roosterteeth.com, which you can conveniently find in our link tree. Thanks to Chris. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. And that link tree is on all our social media, I believe. And if anyone has purchased any merch recently or subscribed to the new premium or anything, thank you. Because that really helps us yes. make the show. Thank you. We really, really appreciate it. I was just wearing our new shirt yesterday. You saw me. We were in the yeah. office together. <laughs> I, wore, I wore it too, but then uh, I got it dirty before I could make it to the office. <laughs> Chris, I got mine dirty too. I have a stain on it. I think I spilled <laughs> coffee on it. I need to buy another one. <laughs> I, I, You know how it was raining like crazy the other day? Yeah. I wore it and somehow the wet rain like got my seatbelt wet and then this dirt from my seatbelt bled onto my shirt. It was stupid. Oh, like, 
yeah, I was like, well, one, I need to clean. I don't know if you could get a dirty seatbelt, but I guess I did. Your car uh, is filthy, Chris. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do need. I really need to clean my car. It's embarrassing. Okay. Uh, anyway, now all the housekeeping's out it's of you. I'm out of, out more concerned about planes than cars, guys. Oh, uh, there you go. Yeah. Okay. I uh, got to keep your seatbelt clean in a plane too. So people generally refer to this as the Überlingen midair collision because uh, uh, it occurred over a town called Überlingen in southern Germany. And this was back on July 1st, 2002. And like I said, there were two flights. The first one was Bashkirian Airlines flight 2937. This flight was crewed by Captain Alexander Mikhailovich Gross, who was 52 years old with over 12,000 flight hours. First officer Oleg Pavlovich Grigoriev who was 40 years old with 8,500 flight hours. And the first officer was actually there to evaluate the captain's performance. Oh. He was like, he was another captain who was evaluating the person flying as captain. <laughs> you know, we've talked about these before. It's like evaluation flights. You mm. make sure, you know, everything's going fine. So it w- even though he was the first officer, he was a captain. Okay. And the pilot who was normally the first officer, <laughs> Murat Itkolov, was 41 years old with 7,900 hours, was still there. He didn't, wasn't serving on the flight, but he was still sitting in the cockpit. So how many people are in the cockpit? So it was those three pilots, two of them who were captains and one of whom was a first officer. But there were also two more people in the cockpit. Okay, so, wow, crowded. Yeah, there was also a flight navigator, Sergei Karlov, who was 50 with 13,000 flight hours, and flight engineer Oleg Valiv, who was 37 years old with 4,200 flight hours. So there are five people total. The captain, the first officer, who was actually a captain, and then the regular first officer who got bumped and who's just sitting in there, as well as the flight navigator and flight engineer. All right. <laughs> so just setting the stage, there are a lot of people up there. The aircraft used was a Tupolev TU-154M with 10,788 flight hours. Tupolev, they're um, Russian midplanes. So you've probably never flown on one. I'll, I'll tell you, Chris. Okay. Slightly older plane as well, which is why, you know, there's also a flight engineer and a flight navigator, you know, things that have been replaced in more modern airlines. The Tupolev was introduced back in 1972. It was produced up until 2013. So an older plane. It's a tri-jet. You know, it's got three engines all at the back of the plane. And it's the bigger... Wait, is that the bigger of the two that hit? No, the other plane is bigger. And uh, we'll, we'll get to that one in uh, just a second. So there were 60 passengers on this plane and four flight attendants on board. Most of the passengers were children who were on a school trip flying from Russia to the northeast coast of Spain. I believe it was like a UNESCO organized trip where it was like students who were excelling in various fields, like either arts or academics or athletics. They were, you know, being rewarded with this trip. The second flight was a DHL cargo flight, uh, and it was flight 611. This flight was crewed by Captain Paul Phillips, who was 47 years old with 12,000 flight hours, and First Officer Brant Campioni, who was 34, with 6,600 flight hours. And this plane was a 12-year-old Boeing 757 with 39,022 hours on it. And like I said, it was a cargo flight. So the two pilots were the only passengers on board that plane. The DHL flight was on a route from Bahrain to Bergamo, Italy, onto Brussels, Belgium, and then back to Bahrain. And then these two pilots had flown this route several times together during the previous month. And at 1.30 p.m. UTC, they departed Bahrain and landed at Bergamo almost six hours later at 7.10 p.m. Just for reference, all these times are going to be in UTC just to avoid uh, confusion. When they were in Bergamo, they refueled, had a cargo change. It's a cargo flight, right? Stuff mm-hmm. comes off, stuff, go, stuff goes back on. And they took off at 9.06 p.m. for Brussels. And they climbed to 26,000 feet initially. At 9.21 p.m., the crew contacted Zurich Area Control. And they were cleared to climb to 32,000 feet. But they requested 36,000 feet, which was the altitude selected on their flight plan. At 9.29, the crew reached 36,000 feet. And of course, they're going to want to fly higher because it's, you know, the air is thinner, um, smoother flight, more fuel efficient. It's better all around. That's why planes fly so high. Oh, actually, I didn't know that until I don't think that that's why they it's more efficient up there. I guess it makes sense. It's like less dense. Yeah, there's less resistance, you could yeah. say. And I don't know about this specific flight, but mm-hmm. the winds at that altitude might have been more favorable to them. You know, they may want the winds to help push them along to get where they're going a little more quickly. You know, a headwind will slow them down and a tailwind will speed them up ground speed. So at 929, they reached their requested altitude of 36,000 feet. And at 934 PM, the first officer handed control of the plane to the captain so he could use the restroom. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a cargo flight, so it's not quite like a normal passenger plane. On this plane, the lavatory was actually installed in the rear of the cockpit. So don't even have to leave the cockpit. It's yeah, you know, the, it's uh, all there. It's and all everything, right there. They're just, everything else is just like storage or whatever in the back. Right. right? 
Right. Presumably it's all just space for, uh, for cargo. At about 12 seconds after the controls were handed to the captain, the TCAS alarmed the crew about possibly conflicting traffic. So like we, I said earlier, this is a traffic advisory. Mm-hmm. About 14 seconds after the first alarm went off, it started saying, descend, descend. The autopilot was then switched off and the control column was pushed forward a little bit. And according to a flight data recorder, they reached a descent rate of 1,500 feet per minute over a period of 12 seconds. Okay. At 9.35, the first officer made the remark, traffic right there. And the captain responded with, yes. Then the TCAS started saying, increase descent, increase descent. Did, did he, when he said traffic right there, is it because he saw? Yeah, he's probably, he's probably pointing uh-huh. out the window uh, and, and okay. saying that's where it is. You know, it's dark, so he can probably see the lights and it's saying, you know, there's the traffic. You know, that okay. way they know and they can keep an eye on it. The first officer then returned to his seat and said, increase. Over the next 10 seconds, the descent rate increased to 2,600 feet per minute. The captain then reported the TCAS descent to Zurich Area Control. The first officer then told the captain to descend and then to descend hard. The control column was then pushed fully forward. Meanwhile, while all this is going on, on the other plane, which is the Bashkirian Airlines flight, that flight departed from Moscow to go to Barcelona, like I said, at 6.48 p.m. At 9.12 p.m., while cruising at 36,000 feet near the border of Austria and Germany, the crew were instructed to switch to Zurich area control, which was the same frequency that the DHL flight was on. And from 9.33 to 9.34 and 41 seconds, the crew had a discussion concerning an airplane approaching from the left, which was displayed on the vertical speed indicator, which is part of uh, the TCAS. These recordings suggest the crew were trying to figure out the other airplane's position and flight level. And during these discussions, the captain said, here it is in sight. And then the plane changed its heading from 254 degrees to 264 degrees. So they're turning to their left. Uh-huh. The TCAS then generated the traffic, traffic warning. Seven seconds later, air traffic control instructed the crew to expedite a descent to 35,000 feet. And while this transmission was going on, the instructor sitting in the right seat requested the captain descend. The control column was then pushed forward, the autopilot was switched off, and thrust was reduced. The crew did not verbally acknowledge the instruction from air traffic control, but at the same time they started to descend, the mm-hmm. TCAS started saying, climb, climb. So they're just contradicting? Right. The TCAS is telling them to climb, but air traffic control is telling them to descend. Mm-hmm. The first officer, who was seated in the jump seat, called out this warning, but the captain told him that he was instructed to descend. Oh, no. Right. (laughs) At 9.35 and two seconds, which was six seconds after the TCAS climb instruction, the control column was pulled back some, but Mm -hmm. only enough to stop the increase in descent rate, and then the throttles were pulled back some more. At this time, the controller again instructed the crew to expedite their descent. The instructor acknowledged this immediately, and the controller informed the crew they had traffic at their two o'clock position. The captain then asked out, where is it? And the first officer in the back said, here on the left side. So remember, two o'clock would be on, on your the right. 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 And the first officer in the back is saying, it's over here on the left. What? Wait, is it? Which, where is it? Right. They don't know. They, they're, they're, you know, they're not sure which side of the plane it's on. Because they can't see it now? Right. They're getting conflicting information from their instruments, uh-huh. from air traffic controller, from the first officer who's actually in the cockpit. So it's just increasing confusion now. Yeah, I'm confused. (laughs) Right. And at this time, their descent rate was about 1,500 feet per minute. When air traffic control was giving his instructions, the flight navigator also commented, it's going to pass beneath us. The captain then pushed his control column again, and the rate of descent increased to more than 2,000 feet per minute. They turned 10 degrees more to the right to a heading of 274 degrees. So at 9.35 and 24 seconds, the TCAS said, increase climb. And the first officer sitting in the jump seat again called out the TCAS is saying to climb. Uh-huh. The control column was then pulled back and the throttles were pushed forward some. Four seconds later, the control column was abruptly pulled back more and the throttles were pushed fully forward. But one second later, the two planes collided uh-huh. at an altitude of 34,890 feet. The Boeing 757 lost most of its vertical stabilizer in the collision uh, and was destroyed by impact forces. The Tupolev broke in flight into several pieces, and both airplanes impacted the ground north of Lake Constance in the southern region of Germany, and everybody on board both planes was killed in the accident. So the DHL plane was actually to the Tupolev's left, just to be okay. clear. It came from the left side, and it did pass right under them, but the vertical stabilizer hit the Tupolev, and it sliced it in half. And so that knocked off the vertical stabilizer from the DHL, and, and you know, the tupola was sliced in half, and so it fell as well. And they both, you know, crashed shortly after that. That was all just happening in the one plane. What was happening in the other one? We talked about the DHL one first. Okay. And, you know, they were, you know, they they knew where the traffic was. They saw it. Uh-huh. And they were, you know, they were listening to TCAS saying descend. Uh-huh. The Bashkirian airline, 
I guess never really saw the DHL play until the last second. And their TCAS was saying climb, but they were listening to air traffic controller yeah. who was telling them to descend. The DHL flight was trying to tell the air traffic controller about the TCAS alert and was trying to tell the air traffic controller that they were descending. But every time they tried to transmit, a little bit of spoiler here, every time the DHL flight tried to transmit what they were doing, air traffic control was talking to the other plane. So they never oh. heard them. You know how it is like with a walkie-talkie? Yeah, that's what you get to say over. Right. It's like if one person's transmitting on a frequency, the other one gets blocked out. So this investigation was carried out by the German Federal Bureau of Aircraft Accidents. And they looked into how crews responded to the TCAS alerts. Uh According to the investigators, the crew on the Boeing 757 conducted themselves professionally. They had displayed effective CRM skills and were proactive in control of the flight progress. With regards to the TCAS alerts, this crew reacted correctly and followed the specified procedures as best as possible given the particular circumstances. Analysis of the Tupolev crew shows that regarding this flight, all crew members were competent in performance of their standard duties. However, they clearly did not follow the TCAS instructions that told them to climb. This led investigators to look into the guidelines in both airlines regarding TCAS. and the TCAS manufacturer's pilot guide, the specifications regarding the TCAS system philosophy and the necessary procedures which ensure safe function were not distinctly described enough. The wording... TCAS 2000 is a backup to the air traffic control system and the see and avoid concept could be interpreted that air traffic control takes priority to TCAS and that TCAS is designed to be implemented like a kind of a substitute. Mm -hmm. It was not made clear in the description of the system philosophy that TCAS is exclusively meant as a last line of defense for the avoidance of collision and that in the stage TCAS advisories must be disconnected from instructions given by air traffic controllers. So what they're getting at here is that in reality, in practice, the way uh-huh. it's supposed to work is you listen to TCAS no matter what. No matter what anyone else is telling you, air traffic control, other pilots, you listen to the TCAS. It's, it's like priority. It's like, it, yeah. Correct. But in the manual and in the guide, it says TCAS is a backup to the air traffic control mm. system and the see and avoid concept. But that's not entirely true. It's a backup in the sense it's like a fail safe. Yeah. But does it mean it should be, you should follow air traffic over TCAS. Correct. Yeah. That is worded. It could be worded better. There's ambiguity there. Yeah. The TCAS 2000 pilot's guide does not state clearly enough that the safe separation accomplished through air traffic control and the tasks of TCAS are two different functions. It is not clear that TCAS is not part of the conceptual design of air traffic control. However, the guide also uses contrary instructions in one of the chapters by saying that pilots must not delay in responding to resolution advisories, must not modify a response to a resolution advisory, and must follow the resolution advisory maneuver unless invoking emergency pilot authority. Remember, I said resolution advisories are like the set, the, the more critical alert from TCAS. It's like, it's when it tells you to, to climb or descend or to deviate in mm-hmm. some way. The descriptions in this guide were the basis of TCAS training within the operator companies and for the procedures in the flight operations manual. So they just weren't really clear enough with the guide as far as giving full authority saying, listen to TCAS above everything else. You said they couldn't hear the TCAS because the uh, navigator was talking over it. Is that what you said? The first officer was telling them what the TCAS was saying because Uh they were doing the opposite. The, The two pilots who were actually flying were doing, you know, one thing, they were descending. The first officer was telling them, that's telling us to climb. Yeah. So did the other plane have any idea before it hit? Yeah, the DHL flight saw the Tupolev. Uh-huh. You know, they knew where they were. They saw them. They clearly knew what was going on, and they were listening to the TCAS trying to avoid yeah. the... Uh, God, that must have been so frustrating to be like, oh, we're, we're doing... Right, wait, what are they doing? What are they doing? You know, just like... Yeah, they're doing everything they're supposed to be doing. They're doing everything correctly. Uh, and they still, you know, end up colliding with that plane. And what was the time, like, what was that time period that we just talked through? Like how, because it seems, we talked through it and it seemed long, but I bet it was like super fast. Yeah. So the the first alert when the first officer in the DHL flight got up to go to the bathroom was at about 934. And the collision occurred just before 936, at about 935 and 32 seconds. So it was about a minute and a half to two minutes total time between the first alert and the collision. So you can see why mm-hmm. there's urgency in a TCAS alert. Yeah. You don't you don't have a lot of time. There's no time to to question it or to wonder like who do we listen to? No. If the TCAS is giving you a resolution advisory, you do it immediately. There is no time. There is no oh, you know, how much do I descend? What should I do? No. You listen to it right away. Yeah. Well, also because the person on the radio is like that's like adding in other variables and they're like telling to do this and the other they have to like they would have to align both 
planes exactly, but the TCAS is like automated, so it's like takes out the human error, right? Right. That's and that's by design. It's supposed to be that way, and that's why the two systems on each individual plane will negotiate with each other and figure out that mm-hmm. advisory without having to involve a person. Just as quick as possible, you know, figure out what's what's going wrong and do, come up with a quick solution. There's nothing quite like the feeling of gathering around a warm fire on a cool evening and a smokeless fire pit from Solar Stove makes your outdoor moments even more memorable because instead of having to constantly dodge campfire fumes, you can sit back, relax, and actually enjoy the fire. Right now, you can get a great deal on a Solar Stove fire pit. I mean, let's all be honest. We've all dealt with fire pits or fires out and, uh, you know, hanging out around them and just ending up stinking of smoke and how those fumes just seem to chase you no matter where you go. Uh, with the solo stove, you don't have to worry about that. It's got a great design that really eliminates those fumes. So you don't have to worry about them getting in your eyes, stinging, just ruining your good time. Not a problem. And uh, plus, it's super simple to start a fire, get it going. Uh, even a dummy like me can do it. So if I can do it, you can definitely do it. So what are you waiting for? Upgrade your backyard with a solo stove fire pit. It's a perfect catalyst for getting outside and spending more time with family and friends. Build lasting memories around a solo stove fire pit. They're made with premium grade 304 stainless steel and a 360 degree airflow system that maximizes efficiency while minimizing smoke. It's easy to light with a few bits of starter. Your fire is blazing in minutes. It's actually really portable too. You can take it with you, camping trips, wherever you want. If you shop now, you can get up to 30% off fire pits all month long and use promo code BLACKBOXDOWN at checkout to get an extra $20 off plus a lifetime warranty, free 30-day returns. Just go to solostove.com. Remember, you get $20 off when you use promo code BLACKBOXDOWN. Hey, that's our podcast name. Going online without ExpressVPN is like using your smartphone without a protective case. Most of the time, you'll probably be fine, but all it takes is one accidental drop on a solid concrete to make you wish you had protected yourself. Every time you connect to an unencrypted network, cafes, hotels, airports, you name it, your online data is not secured. Any hacker on the same network can gain access to and steal your personal data uh, doesn't take much technical knowledge to hack someone. Just some cheap hardware is needed. I bet a smart 12-year-old could do it. Plus, your data is valuable. Hackers can make up to $1,000 per person selling your personal info on the dark web. So ExpressVPN works by creating an encrypted tunnel that's secure between your device and the internet so hackers cannot steal your sensitive data. It would take a hacker with a supercomputer over a billion years to get past ExpressVPN's encryption, um, but then you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> so just fire up the app and click one button, you get protected. So easy. Works on phones, laptops, tablets, and more, so you stay secure on the go. I like it. Like I said, it works on all devices. Don't have to worry about it. Don't even have to think about it. It's just there whenever I need it on my phone, on my tablet, on my laptop, everywhere I need it, it's there. Uh, anywhere on mobile, connecting to uh, to internet, that's not my home internet. So secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash blackboxdown. Get an extra three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown. You're about to hear a preview of The Jordan Harbinger Show with an investigative journalist that uncovers how a fraudster siphoned off billions of dollars. Jolo was a kid from an island called Penang. He was sent by his father to Harrow in the UK. And then he went to Wharton in America. It was almost like a family con that was going on here. From a very young age, they wanted their son to network. Very, very, very skilled networker. His childhood friend is a son of this character called Najib Razak. And Najib Razak becomes prime minister of Malaysia. And it sets him up as this sort of eminence grise or a Svengali type figure behind the prime minister. He just took all the money out of a sovereign wealth fund overnight. You know, we think he stole at least $6 billion, but Jola was an imposter. People still questioned who was this guy? Where did he come from? Why is he splashing all this money around? To get a deep dive into the shadowy world of corruption, money laundering, and embezzling by the shadiest shysters among the elite, check out episode 602 of The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Boeing Flight Crew Training Manual states, flight crews should follow resolution advisory commands using established procedures unless doing so would jeopardize the safe operation of the airplane or positive visual contact confirms there is a safer course of action. It goes on to say, maneuvering opposite to a resolution advisory command is not recommended since TCAS may be coordinating with other airplanes. That's what I said. It's, mm-hmm. The Boeing manual specifically says, you know, it's not recommended to go against a resolution advisory because, like I said, TCAS is coordinating. It's, it, 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 it's telling you to do one thing. It's telling another plane to do another thing. Mm-hmm. So it has typically your best course of action in mind. And this gives guidance to the crew that they should follow a TCAS resolution advisory, but does not mandate compliance with the resolution advisory, leaving the decision to the pilot in command. Because ultimately, it is a pilot's decision on what to do. It's just strongly advising them 
to follow the resolution advisory and explaining why. However, all this material is consistent in cautioning against a maneuver in the opposite direction to a resolution advisory and reinforcing that the resolution advisory should be followed unless it would be unsafe to do so. So that's on the Boeing side. Mm -hmm. The Tupolev 154M flight operations manual states, for the avoidance of in-flight collisions is the visual control of the situation in the airspace by the crew and the correct execution of all instructions issued by air traffic control to be regarded as the most important tool. TCAS is an additional instrument which ensures the timely determination of oncoming traffic, the classification of the risk, and if necessary, planning of advice for a vertical avoidance maneuver. So that wording makes it clear to the operators of the Tupolev that air traffic control is the highest priority, mm. which is why they were listening to air traffic control instead of the resolution advisory on the TCAS. How old was uh, TCAS at this point, like the invention of it? So in the United States, commercial aircraft had it implemented in 1993. So at this point, it's about nine years old. Okay, so it's not like a new thing. I mean, when you're talking about like in the scope of aviation where planes can be, you know, kind of older, maybe, but it's not like it was something no one had heard of, right? They should be somewhat familiar to pilots by this point. You know, it had been implemented long enough to the point where it's in the manuals for both of these planes. Yeah. You know, it's not like they were ignorant of this technology. The investigators looked into the regulations made by the International Civil Aviation Organization in regards to the TCAS system, and they found that the regulations were also not clear and in some cases contradictory as to whether or not the TCAS Resolution Advisory had the highest authority. National aviation authorities based their regulations off of these, you know, International Civil Aviation Organization regulations, so this resulted in no clear unified global understanding as to how the TCAS resolution advisory should be handled. So in the global authority, there was some ambiguity, which is why we see in this case, mm-hmm. Boeing manual says, follow TCAS, and the Tupolev manual says, follow air traffic control. Obviously, you know, yeah. that's the kind of loophole that leads to accidents. It's kind of like weird oversight that seems like, no, it wouldn't be an issue until it is and until people you know, pass away. Who would be responsible for setting like global standards like that? It's this organization. We've mentioned it a few times, the International Civil Aviation Organization. It's the ICAO. Okay, yeah. It's a specialized agency of the United Nations, and it kind of comes up with the global rules for all of aviation that everyone follows, just to kind of create the kind of standards that we all take for Mm -hmm. granted. (laughs) So the other part of this puzzle, I'm sure you've probably thought about by now, is the air traffic control. And the investigators, of course, found issues with air traffic control in this area. Yeah, There were two controllers working this sector on the night of the accident. They both arrived for work at 5.50 p.m. And after the work had started and the air traffic control volume had decreased, because, you know, it's nighttime, there's less Mm -hmm. traffic. So the volume had decreased. One of the controllers retired to rest in the lounge. They also had two assistants, but the assistants did not have any authority to give air traffic control instructions. One of the assistants also went to rest in the lounge soon after the one controller did. So this left one controller to monitor two workstations and frequencies on his own. The spatial distance between the lounges and the control room prevents a quick alert of the second controller in conjunction with an immediate appearance. So that's just saying the break room's a little far away. Mm -hmm. Officially, this procedure did not exist, but this had been in practice at this control center for many years. What would you say? Wait, what procedure? Just them taking a break? Right. The one, one controller taking a break. This is kind of an arrangement that the controllers had come up with to make the night shifts more comfortable. Like when it got slower, one of them would go take a long break and then they would trade off. Then the one who was rested up would come and relieve the other one. They would go take a break. Mm -hmm. But the downside is, of course, like I said, they then have to monitor two stations. This is a way of proceeding which does not provide any redundancy of human resources so that procedural errors, wrong distributions of attention, or the omission of important actions may lead to hazardous situations as there's nobody there to notice these mistakes and take corrective actions. It's kind of like there's no backup. There's no second set of eyes looking at things. It follows that the breaks prescribed could not be taken. Even though this was an unofficial procedure, it was known to and tolerated by the management. So like I said, unofficial, but management was aware of this and they let it, they let it slide. They let it continue to happen, even though it wasn't official. Mm -hmm. In the moments leading up to the collision, there was an unexpected approach of a delayed Airbus A320 to Friedrichshafen that was operating on the frequency that the 757 and the Tupolev were not on. So this caused the controller to miss the Boeing 757 cruise transmission they were descending due to TCAS. When the controller concentrated again on the two planes, 
He noticed the separation infringement and immediately issued an avoidance instruction to the Tupolev crew, which they realized directly and acknowledged with some delay. He did not know anything about the resolution advisory, which had been issued immediately after his instruction and was in contradiction to it. Generally, it would have been possible for the controller to safely handle the traffic consisting of these three airplanes at the time of the accident. The controller came to the same conclusion and did not ask for support from his colleague in the lounge. The decision was probably based on his experience regarding a smooth course of operation and did not take into consideration possible problems. So basically, he was dealing with, you know, besides these two planes that collided, there was this third plane, this Airbus A320 that had been delayed, that mm-hmm. was calling on a different frequency. So that was also adding to his workload. He's dealing with this third plane on a different frequency, trying to get them help. Then, you know, when he's done with them, he looks back over to the other screen, sees the two planes conflicting, has to change frequencies and try to start dealing with them. Whereas if, you know, there was a second person there, not as big of a deal. Mm-hmm. There was also a short-term conflict alert visual display in the facility. However, it was not available because it was operating in fallback mode. The optical short-term conflict alert would have alerted the controller of the danger approximately two and a half minutes prior to the collision. Air traffic control, however, must work even where a short-term conflict alert is not installed or is for some other reason not available. Short-term conflict alert, like TCAS, is an additional safety system. Nobody in the control room had noticed the oral STCA generated by the system. It did not influence the course of the accident because it resounds just six nautical miles before the calculated point of collision is reached. And at the time, the controller had already recognized the problem. So they're saying there was this other alert that wasn't working that could have potentially let them know a little earlier, but Mm -hmm. probably not a big deal because they should have, he noticed it anyway. And this is something they should have noticed regardless of that alert. Okay. There was a lot of other things going on in this tower. Uh, I, I, we're at the findings portion of, uh-huh. uh, of this, but I want to paint a little more of a picture of other things that were going on in this tower. Like I said, this is nighttime. There was um, less traffic. So there was also maintenance going on at the time. Oh, like in the tower with them? Yeah, there was maintenance going on. They were doing upgrades that were planned. And as a result, that's why the short-term conflict alert was in fallback mode. The system was in fallback mode because they had taken some parts of it offline to do upgrades on it. And as a result of everything being in fallback mode, the air traffic controller screen, like his radar screen, was not updating as frequently. It was updating more slowly than normal. Mm. On top of all of that, also as part of the upgrades, their phone system was down. So that's why he was taking so long dealing with that Airbus A320. Uh-huh. He was trying to hand them off to the airport they were going to land at. You know, and he picked up his phone to call that airport, but his phone wasn't working. He couldn't get through. So he was taking more time having to figure out how to deal with this and try to, you know, set aside that Airbus A320, take care of them, and then focus back on the other planes who, by the way, his screen was you know, was, mm. was delayed on giving him information on because there was maintenance going on at the time. Yeah. Sounds like you shouldn't do maintenance when also the other person's on a break, right? Right. I mean, it's like you, you, would, you would think like there's never a good time to do maintenance, yeah. right? That's why they pick nighttime, probably less traffic. Well, there's definitely less traffic. But, you know, when things are being worked on, when the system's not at 100%, you would think you need a few more mm-hmm. eyes just to be safe. So that, I'm just trying to like set yeah. what was going on for that air traffic controller. He's dealing with two stations that have delayed readings and his phone isn't working. I feel bad for him. Yeah, it, it's, it, it, he, was, he was definitely set up for failure yeah. in this situation. And then on top of that, you know, he doesn't know the TCAS is going out. When he tells the Tupolev to, to descend, he could have told them to climb, right? Mm-hmm. He had a 50-50 shot of calling out the correct course of action and he picked the wrong one. Why did he pick that one? Or like, why was it 50, 50? Like- because he could have told the Tupolev to either climb or descend. Those are the two options he could have told them. And he told them to descend when the TCAS was telling them to climb. If he had said climb, it would have matched the TCAS mm-hmm. and they would have averted the crash. But is it just arbitrary then that he could have just been like climb or descend? I mean, yeah, he probably, if I had to guess, and this is total uh-huh. speculation, he probably said descend because I bet the Tupolev can't fly much higher than 36,000 mm, feet. Okay. That's pure speculation on my part. So that's, that, that might be why he did that. Should anyone in the, in the actual plane have said, hey, this is does not match what the TCAS is saying. Should they? Well, the first officer who was in the jump seat was Well, I know he them. was saying that, but did, yeah. did they communicate that to the tower? No, they never communicated that they were receiving a resolution advisory. As far as I know, mm-hmm. I should say, I don't believe they ever communicated that they had received a resolution advisory. They were just listening to air traffic control and doing what they said. There's also some speculation. Again, this is pure speculation mm-hmm. that I've seen people talk, the investigators talk about when it comes to this incident. TCAS, when it gives an alert, it's a very cold, monotone, detached voice, 
right? So TCAS is sitting there just very matter-of-factly saying, climb, climb. Meanwhile, they have a human who's probably very urgently saying, hey, you need to descend right now. Uh Which one do you listen to? The calm voice or the excited voice? Yeah. You know, it's just like part of that human psyche listening to the the more urgent voice as opposed to like the more calm one. Yeah. Well, and also, yeah, it's just like a human. Right. So uh, I'm just like a little more, I guess, um, story, a little more, uh, a little more detail kind of filling in on, you know, not just reading <laughs> mm-hmm. bits of reports, but just trying to like paint the picture for everything that's going on, setting all of this up. So findings here. In both airplanes, there was no evidence of TCAS malfunction. Like we said, the TCAS resolution advisories, if they had been followed, would have been the correct course of action here. The Boeing 757 TCAS computer was destroyed by impact forces, so an evaluation was not possible anymore. Uh, It was possible to analyze the essential data of both airplanes from the TCAS computer of the Tupolev 154M. At the time of the accident, visual meteorological conditions at dark night prevailed. So that's just saying... They were able to see. It was visual conditions. It wasn't instrument meteorological conditions. They weren't in clouds. There was no fog. It was a clear night. Due to the high closure rate of 702 to 718 knots and the darkness, a visual avoidance maneuver for neither of the flight crews was a possibility to prevent the collision. And that's just saying they were converging so quickly and at night, it would have been impossible to do visual avoidance. Like they would have seen them and then, you know, been on top of each other instantly. Well, yeah, like because... We were saying it was like a minute or a minute and 30 seconds, but that's without them even seeing it, right? Right. And the DHL flight did see them, but, you know, they they tried to do a course of action, but the other plane did the same thing, and that's why they uh, collided. The flight paths crossed at right angles. The Boeing 757 had a northern heading of 004 degrees, and the Tupolev T-154M had a western heading of 274 degrees. The collision occurred at an altitude of 34,890 feet. Both operators had provided training programs for TCAS, and the flight crews had, as far as necessary, completed the corresponding trainings. Practical TCAS training of the flight crew of the Tupolev 154M in the flight simulator was not possible, as the simulators were not appropriately equipped. The flight operations manuals of both operators contained provisions for the handling of TCAS. The flight operations manuals of both operators did not contain detailed descriptions of the tasks of the individual flight crew members in the case of TCAS occurrences. In the operations manual of the TU-154M, the TCAS description wording was such that air traffic control had the highest priority in collision avoidance. And we mentioned that earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, it's said to, to defer to the air traffic control. According to the duty schedule, two controllers were responsible for the control of the entire airspace of ACC Zurich during the night shift. They had to assume the tasks of radar planning, radar executive, and to a limited extent, also the functions of the supervisor and system manager. Therefore, a continuous management of the different tasks was not ensured. An assessment to minimize risks during the night shift did not take place. So again, just there should have been two people there. Yeah. Two assistants were at the disposal of the controllers to support them with routine and coordination tasks. However, they had no authorization to assume any traffic control functions. Like I said, there were assistants there. They just kind of helped you know, print out and hand off, um, you know, those little, I don't know how to describe those little blocks that air traffic controllers use to move around to coordinate where the planes are in their head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's more like, like they're just like, at least they're assistants. They don't do any actual controlling. They're just there to help do other things that the air traffic controllers may need. They move the blocks. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like those little mm-hmm. blocks, they put the little strips yeah. on them. Yeah. You see them in movies and TV shows yeah, all yeah. the time. I have no idea what those blocks are actually called. <laughs> After the air traffic flow had decreased, one controller retired to rest at about 9.15 p.m., and approximately 10 minutes later, one assistant retired to rest. Normally, they would not return to the control room until early in the morning. Like I said, they would swap out partway through the the shift. It had been known to and tolerated by the management and the quality assurance of the Air Navigation Service Company for years that during the night at periods of low traffic flow, only one controller performed all air traffic control tasks, whereas the other controller had a rest. The controller was solely responsible for the entire air traffic control within ACC Zurich. For this, he had to fill two adjacent workstations with different frequencies and worked with two radar monitors in order to control flights in the upper airspace and the approach in the lower airspace to Friedrichshafen. Radar charts with different ranges were displayed on the monitors. And Friedrichshafen is that airport, like I mentioned, where that Airbus A320 was going into. Mm-hmm. The controller was not aware that in the fallback mode, the optical short-term collision alert was not available. Remember, I said the system was in fallback mode because they were doing maintenance. Yeah. According to his statement, the controller did not notice the message of the Boeing 757 crew. The first part of the message was incomprehensible due to the simultaneous transmission of both crew members. 
The second part coincided with a message at the adjacent workstation transmitted by the Airbus A320. Like I said, the Boeing 757 was trying to tell them what they were doing. The first time they transmitted, it got blocked because he was talking to the Tupolev. The second time he was the Boeing transmitted, the air traffic controller was at the other workstation dealing on a different frequency with the Airbus A320. Yeah, man, that's terrible. It's like everything all aligning in the worst way. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's what a lot of these incidents are. Like, what are the odds that the Boeing would be transmitting at the exact wrong, like not the yeah. wrong times, but at the exact time as someone else, or that you know, it's updates. Someone's on a break. It's it's the two planes are like not don't have the same instructions and then another plane comes by at the same time and it's like right then th- that plane was the third plane was delayed like it should have been uh, through there earlier like <laughs> it's it's like final destination type stuff you know what i mean i i know in a, a less dramatic and obviously but we, we you, you see in those movies where it's like one little thing rolls this way and it's like a uh, what do you call those? Uh, like a Rube Goldberg Rube machine? Rube Goldberg machine for a disaster, but like... I haven't even talked about this. Uh, I wasn't sure if we would bring it up or not. But if you want to really get like blown away by the coincidences uh-huh. and uh, just like the small chain of effects, if you want to really break it down, the Tupolev shouldn't have even been there. This was a charter flight. And this flight had been delayed by two days uh-huh. because the people who had chartered it, remember I said it was a bunch of school kids? When they went to the airport, the bus driver took them to the wrong airport, so they missed their initial charter flight. What? So the charter company had to arrange for a new flight two days later, and that's this plane. They should have already been in Spain two days before this. I mean, does that have anything? I mean, just the fact that they had this new flight, is that, I mean, it's just like when they wouldn't normally have a flight, or is it just, or is it just another coincidence? It's just another coincidence, right? Like, these kids... They went to Moscow, bus driver took them to the wrong airport, so they missed their flight. So they spend two days in Moscow, get on another plane, and that plane just happens to be this one that collides with this DHL flight. And like I said, it was a charter flight. This plane wouldn't have been there if they hadn't chartered it, if they hadn't missed that first flight, if the bus driver had taken them to the correct airport. Again, it's just another one of those things. Like the, the, the more you look at it and the more you like take a step back and look further, it's just even more unbelievable coincidences that all line up to cause this collision. So, you know, we're going to get into the causes here found by the report and the following immediate causes have been identified. The imminent separation infringement was not noticed by air traffic control in time. The instruction for the Tupolev to descend was given at a time when prescribed separation to the Boeing 757 could not be ensured anymore. So air traffic is just basically saying that the air traffic control told the Tupolev to descend without telling the Boeing what to do and not know, you know, knowing that they would, didn't have time to tell the Boeing what to do. So they couldn't be 100% sure that this was going to solve the situation that was happening. Okay. The Tupolev crew followed the air traffic control instruction to descend and continued to do so even after TCAS advised them to climb. This maneuver was performed contrary to the generated TCAS resolution advisory. And the following systemic causes have been identified. The integration of ACAS and TCAS into the aviation system was insufficient and did not correspond in all points with the system philosophy. The regulations concerning TCAS published by the International Civil Aviation Organization, and as a result, the regulations of national aviation authorities, operational and procedural instructions of the TCAS manufacturer and the operators were not standardized, incomplete, and partially contradictory. This is kind of some of the things we talked about. There was no clear-cut standard for how this should be approached. When you're reading it, it seems okay until you can yeah. do a situation like it's like, oh, there was ambiguity in that sentence, wasn't there? It's like, it, it, it happens all the time, right? Like, I'll send an email to someone and they'll reply with something totally different. Like, why do I, why did I get this? And I'll, re- I'll reread my email. I'll be like, oh, I see they mis- they interpreted what I wrote in a different way. Yeah, It's that kind of thing where it's like language is flexible, especially in this kind of deal where you're dealing with all these international agencies, mm, not only yeah. you're dealing with the ambiguity of language, but then when it gets translated, it may be translated slightly differently than it was originally intended. And and we've already talked about some countries and regions have different like philosophies. I don't know any philosophies, but you know what I mean? Like how the, uh, is it is, is it uh, Russia? Just culture. Yeah. Well, and even is it Russia that has the, the flip-flopped of the... Uh, the ADI? Yeah. yeah. Stuff like that. That's also... There was some speculation about cultural differences coming into play here, mm-hmm. that the Russian pilots were more likely to listen to humans as opposed to a computer because they trust people more than they did the machine. You know, that of course, there's no way to quantify that. Yeah. But there is some speculation that that may have also played into it, that in becoming pilots, in learning to, to fly, that they're always taught 
to listen to air traffic control no matter what. And it comes across in their flight manual. That's what it even says. Air traffic control is you know, the, the ultimate authority. And that may be a part of it as well. Again, that's, that's impossible to quantify. So management and quality assurance of the air navigation service company did not ensure that during the night, all open workstations were continuously staffed by controllers. Again, one of the controllers went to take a break in the lounge. Management and quality assurance of the air navigation service company tolerated for years that during times of low traffic flow at night, only one controller worked and the other one retired to rest. That, I mean, that's really, really damning yeah. for air traffic control that that happened. And uh, we got some recommendations here. The International Civil Aviation Organization should change the international requirements so that pilots flying are required to obey and follow TCAS resolution advisories, regardless or whether contrary air traffic control instruction is given prior to, during, or after the resolution advisories are issued. Unless the situation is too dangerous to comply, the pilot flying should comply with the resolution advisory until TCAS indicates the airplane is clear of the conflict. So they're stating it very explicitly. Mm -hmm. Like, no ambiguity here. TCAS is the ultimate authority in conflict. If it goes off, you listen to it. As long as it doesn't, immediately put your plane in danger, right? Yeah. You know, that's the final call of the pilot. But if TCAS is going off, chances are it's, it's, it's telling you to do the right thing. The Federal Office for Civil Aviation should ensure that the ACC Zurich is manned with the minimum number of air traffic controllers as follows. There shall be at least two controllers on active duty at all times. There shall be at least two controllers to manage en route sectors one radar planner, and one radar executive. When ACC is required to manage the approach services for Friedrich Schaefen and Alterhein St. Gallen, one additional controller shall be assigned to this task. Alternatively, this task should be taken over by APP Zurich. So just mandating there needs to be more people. And if you're also doing approaches for Friedrich Schaefen, you need another person for that. Additional controllers shall be assigned to manage breaks. Again, <laughs> they're just trying to make sure they have enough people and there's, this doesn't happen mm-hmm. anymore. International Civil Aviation Organization should ensure that rules and procedures regarding airborne collision avoidance systems are uniform, clear, and unambiguous. Again, what we talked about, all countries should be approaching this the same way. International Civil Aviation Organization should ensure a high level of acceptance and confidence of pilots' staff in ACAS by improving education and training. To enhance the performance of ACAS, the International Civil Aviation Organization should initiate the development of downlinking resolution advisories to air traffic control by using technologies as SSR Mode S, an automatic dependent surveillance broadcast, or ADSB. ADSB, we've talked about that before. It just became a requirement in all planes in the U.S. operating in most airspaces in the last couple of years. This requirement was written back in 2004. And ADSB is just like a broadcast system that lets planes know where other planes are. Like if you ever use like a flight tracking website, mm-hmm. that's reading ADSB data okay. from planes so you can see where they are. And then I know that that suggestion was kind of like a mouthful of technical stuff. And it's just saying that if a resolution advisory gets given in a plane, mm-hmm. there should be a system for that to pop up on air traffic control scope as well. That way they know the air traffic controller can see, oh, TCAS went off in these planes and this is what it's telling them to do. Yes, it is it's just kind of reinforcing TCAS is number one. Right. And, it's tell, and that, that way the air traffic controller yeah. doesn't try to say something contrary to what's being broadcast to the planes. The Federal Office for Civil Aviation should ensure that the air traffic control units of the air traffic control service provider are equipped with an effective short-term conflict alert system covering the following minimum demands. An appropriate indication of failure or unavailability of the short-term conflict alert at the affected air traffic controller workstation. An adjustment of volume that prevents the controller from missing the acoustical STCA warning. And when activated, the acoustical STCA warning should sound permanently until acknowledgement at the affected workstation by the controller. So this is dealing with that alert I was talking about that wasn't working um, Mm because the system was in fallback mode. Just saying, like, if it's not working or if it's unavailable, there should be an alert about it. (laughs) (laughs) And they should be, the, the volume should be turned up so you can't miss it. And that when it activates and when it sounds... It should continue to sound until cleared by the workstation where the alert is occurring. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Right. It's all. It all seems, in hindsight, it all seems like common sense. Fire alarms don't stop until there's no fire. <laughs> right. <laughs> or until there's someone, no smoke. Right. Someone acknowledges it and turns it off and yeah. says, "Yes, I checked it, and everything is okay." The Federal Office for Civil Aviation should ensure that the air traffic service provider takes appropriate action to assure an effective operation of their safety management system inasmuch as that international requirements are assured and appropriate safety strategies, management techniques, and quality procedures are incorporated and evaluated. 
The Civil Aviation Authority of the Russian Federation should ensure that exposure to crew resource management training within the airline industry is advanced. The use of flight simulators or appropriate synthetic training devices for line-oriented flight training should be promoted. The FAA should ensure that the TCAS 2000 manufacturer rephrases the TCAS 2000 operating manual to reflect the ACAS-TCAS system philosophy and the international ACAS-TCAS regulations and operating procedures in an unambiguous and consistent manner. Again, that goes back to the thing we said super early on, where the manual was seemingly kind of ambiguous and seemingly kind of deferred to air traffic control. Like, got to remove that, got to be very explicitly clear about it. And that's all the... um, the findings and recommendations. What ended up happening with the air traffic control? Did either of them get in trouble or like who? who? Chris, we have barely started to scratch the surface of this oh, episode. Oh, wow. Oh my God. <laughs> Wait, really? <laughs> you asked the perfect lead up question at the perfect time. Before I get to the air traffic controllers and uh-huh. what happened there, I'm going to step back, take one step back. We're talking about the air traffic control company first. So the air traffic control company that was controlling this airspace was a company called Skyguide. Air traffic control in this region had recently been privatized. It was no longer a government function. It was a private company called Skyguide that was providing air traffic control. And when this incident happened, they initially blamed the Russian pilots for the accident, right? Whenever accidents happen, no one wants to take responsibility. They blamed the Russian pilots. Then eventually, you know, as all the information comes out, they accepted full responsibility and they asked the relatives of the victims for forgiveness. Skyguide paid compensation to the families of the dead children. And the compensation amount was about... 30,000 to 36,000 Swiss francs. So today, let's say 35,000 Swiss francs is equivalent to about 36,000 US dollars. Okay. The furthest back I can look is about 10 years ago, and the currency stayed relatively stable. So even if it was like back in 2012, it would have been roughly the same amount. So I'm going to say, you can probably say it was was in that same neighborhood. Uh, Of course, not adjusted for inflation or anything. Okay. The Swiss federal court turned down appeals from some relatives for higher compensation in 2011. And on July 27th, 2006, a court in Constance decided that Germany should pay compensation to Bashkirian Airlines. The court found that Germany was legally responsible for the actions of Skyguide. The government appealed the ruling, but in late 2013, Bashkirian Airlines in Germany reached a tacit agreement, ending the court case before a decision on the legal issues was reached. A criminal investigation of Skyguide began in May 2004, and on August 6, 2006, a Swiss prosecutor filed manslaughter charges against eight employees of Skyguide. Wow. Yeah, the prosecutor called for prison terms up to 15 months if found guilty, and the verdict was announced in September 2007. Three of the four managers convicted were given suspended prison terms, and the fourth was ordered to pay a fine. Another four Skyguide employees were cleared of any wrongdoing. So no one really went to jail, right? Not really. Uh, I mean, they were, you know, some people were found guilty. They were given mm-hmm. suspended prison terms. And some people paid a fine. There, There is more still to this story, though. Like I said, this was, this plane was filled with uh, students. The, the, the Tupolev was mm-hmm. filled with students who were going from Russia to Spain for a vacation. Like I said, it was a charter flight. But on top of those students, there was also a family on this flight. The father of the family worked as an architect in Spain, So his wife and his two kids were flying from Russia out to Barcelona to come visit him while he was working in Spain. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the the architect's wife and two children died on the Tupolev flight. And he was so upset that, the architect, I should say, was so upset that he immediately flew from Barcelona out to the crash site to try to find his family's remains. He actually found his his daughter's body intact. Uh, she She was four years old. He, you know, he didn't find his wife and son. Eventually, of course, their bodies were found a few days later. And they offered him 160,000 Swiss francs, so a little more than everyone else. It's, it's, it's an awful story. He, found, he actually found her pearl necklace first on the ground and then nearby you know, found her body intact. And, of course, you know, she had passed away from the impact. Mm-hmm. So you know, he wanted to get to the bottom of this. He wanted you know, something to happen to the, the, the specific controller who, in his mind, was responsible for his family's death. Yeah. The controller who was working at the time, his name was Peter Nielsen. And after the accident, of course, you know, he he needed, uh, you know, medical attention due to traumatic stress caused by the accident. You know, and at Skyguide, his Mm -hmm. former colleagues maintain a vase with a white rose over his, you know, the workstation where he was working. And like I said, this architect, his name was Vitaly Kaloyev. 
he held Nielsen personally responsible for the deaths of his wife and his two children who were on that flight. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, this architect, Vitaly Kaluyev, he would attend memorials and, you know, press conferences by Skyguide. And he would, you know, demand that they apologize. And, you know, he would ask, you know, for, to meet with Nielsen because he wanted to hold Nielsen personally responsible for this incident. Uh-huh. A couple of years later, on February 24th, 2004, Kaliev tracked down Nielsen and stabbed him to death. Oh, my God. At his home. Oh, my God. Yeah, he went out there and he he, he went to Nielsen's home at night and sat in the garden out in the front yard. And, you know, Nielsen saw someone out in his yard and, you know, opened his door, went out to tell this person to go away. And, uh, yeah, Kaliev stabbed him, you know, in front of his family who were all there as well. Oh, my God. That is some, like, movie crazy dramatized I, I don't i don't know that sounds insane yeah it's it, it, it's just like the tragedy just keeps going with this incident. yeah and wait how long had that been since the actual accident at that point the accident was in july 2002 uh-huh. uh nielsen was murdered in february 2004 so not quite two years oh my god that's like you have a heck of a vengeance if you're like, I mean, his entire family was was killed, you know, and he, he, he as far as he believed, this was mm-hmm. the person responsible for it. Uh, and I'm not justifying it at all. I'm just saying, yeah. like, you know, that's why he was so angry. Yeah. The Swiss police arrested Kaliev at a local motel shortly afterwards. And in 2005, he was sentenced to eight years for manslaughter. That's it? Yeah. And then on top of that, his sentence was later reduced after a Swiss judge ruled that he had acted with diminished responsibility. He was actually released in November of 2007. Having spent, you know, what is that, just a co- less than four years in prison because his mental condition was not sufficiently considered in the initial sentence. Well, so that is, that's an easy sentence for stabbing a dude. Yeah, it seems like he got off pretty light. In fact, and then he returned home mm-hmm. back to the uh, Ossetia region of Russia. And in 2008, he was appointed deputy construction minister of North Ossetia. He was actually treated as a hero back home. Oh, my God. When he returned home, he has expressed no regrets for his actions. He was treated as a hero for stabbing the guy? Yeah, because remember, these were all like exceptional children from that area. Mm -hmm. They exceeded, you know, they did very well in their respective fields that they were doing. It's sympathetic. Like you feel, but I don't know, just to be like, yeah, I I waited in the garden and stabbed him. Yeah, (laughs) and he, he blames the murder victim for his own death. Uh, like he's, he still has expressed no regret over this. And in 2016, Kaloyev was awarded the highest state medal by the government, the, to the glory of Ossetia. It's awarded for the highest achievements, improving the living conditions of the inhabitants of the region, educating the younger generation and maintaining law and order. So he's totally considered a hero in that area, in that region. Had he done other things to merit that award or was it a lot of that award because he went and stabbed the guy. I can't, I don't know. I can't speak to that. I can't say with any definitive authority, mm-hmm. but I will say he did not get that award till 2016, which was several years later, but I don't know. It seems really weird to me in general to even give uh, like this highest achievement government medal to someone who murdered someone else. Yeah. Regardless of whatever other achievements he may have had. It's just a bad look. Unless yeah. that's the look you're going for. Yeah, it's... uh an awful situation all around there. Like I said, at the start, at the top of this episode, there's just so much that happened here. And then even after the accident, this murder that happens and it's, it, I don't know, so many things went wrong and then just continued to go wrong. And ultimately a lot was learned from it. You know, with TCAS is much better now. Mm-hmm. Pilots know to 100% listen to resolution advisories and deal with them. But I mean, still all these people died needlessly. Yeah. I've seen pictures of the memorial. I'm going to see if I can put some uh, on our social media, the the Oberlingen Memorial where this um, crash, you know, where the mm-hmm. planes actually came to, to rest on the ground. It's like a a long broken pearl necklace. Oh, that's tragic. Yeah, it's uh, it, it looks really cool. I think it's really st- a striking uh, memorial, uh, like a reminder of what happened there. That is, though, also, you know, playing into that one person's perspective. You know? Yeah, I mean, it. he did find the pearl necklace. Mm-hmm. I think it's not entirely clear if that's supposed to be the same pearl necklace or just one in general. But yeah, I mean, it, I'm sure it also yeah. breaks his heart to know that he found that. I was not expecting a stabbing uh, uh, an hour in. <laughs> well, you don't normally expect that with a, a plane crash or the incidents that we talk about. No, just the U- that what it was like the second episode we did, the UPS one. Oh, FedEx. FedEx one. 
Yeah, yeah. That one had a hammer stab, but a hammer and a, a spear gun. Yeah. But yeah, that's it. That's the Uberlingen midair collision. One that I've wanted to do for a while, one that people have asked about, but I felt like, I don't know, we needed, we needed to have a bunch of episodes under mm-hmm. our belt before we could start tackling this one. But I do want to remind people we are going on break. This is our last episode for a little while. We'll be back in two weeks with a supplemental episode. So we just take a couple of weeks off just to get some research done for the next batch of episodes. Uh, but we will still continue putting some supplemental stuff out in the meantime to kind of hold you over. But yeah, that's what you can expect in two weeks from now. And it's good stuff. It's not just like... Yeah, it's, it's not filler. It's good yeah. stuff. It's just di- different than our normal content. Yeah. And we, and we have the like the new video stuff. So if you want to check that out. Yeah. It's over at the Black Box Down YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. Oh, get some merch. Oh, get some merch. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you guys next time.